Hi everyone, I'm Morgan. And I'm Chief. You are listening to Suspicion. So everyone, there is not two men on this on this episode, but there is one. Well, my size would make it maybe two. <laughs> no, I'm talking about our voices because we both have colds. I understand, but I'm just saying, <laughs> still could still could be two of us here. Oh my god! So everyone, meet our dad. Hello, Chief. everyone. It's a pleasure to be here, Morgan. Thank you for having me. Thanks for stepping in. Um, this was actually supposed to be an episode a few weeks ago when Jessica was gone, but due to timing, it didn't happen until now, but I'm super excited to share our podcast with you. Well, I'm happy to be here, even though my voice is going because of that nasty cold yeah. that is going around everywhere, but I'm here for you. I'm on, I'm on the end of that cold, so... There's an end in sight. Excellent. Today's episode is one that I am really excited about. This story, I've, I kind of heard a little bit about it when it happened, but I never knew all of the details of it until researching it. But because you have a financial background, I thought it would be interesting to do kind of a financial con crime. Oh, he's a real goofball. I mean, I it's just unbelievable how he's conned so many people and so many supposedly smart, astute people. Yeah. Out of so much money, time, presence, etc. Mm -hmm. Just phenomenal. So we're not talking about Bernie Madoff. We are talking about Clark Rockefeller, a.k.a. Christian Carl Gerhard Strider. And that's a mouthful. I know. So Christian Carl Gerhard Strider grew up in a small resort town in Bergen, Germany. He was short, skinny, and known as a misfit with a house painter and amateur artist's father and a seamstress mother. He loved to make up fantasies about his life and stuck out in his small town. One time on a train trip, he met an American family who he started talking to and they told him that if he was ever in the United States, to look them up. You know, this is very similar to what we do when people say, oh, why don't you stop by? Oh, yeah. I always warn them, don't, don't do that because we will stop by. Like the time we were in California and mom forced us to go through a gated community to see our neighbors that we don't even know. Yeah, they, they asked for us to come by sometime. Yeah. And so, that of was, course, we did. That was the most awkward experience of my life. Yeah, it was a little bit difficult <laughs> yeah but I mean in this case Christian took took them up on their offer when he turned 17 in 1978 he left Germany and showed up unannounced to the family's home in Connecticut hello he lived with them for a little bit but then he it didn't work out so he moved into a new house with a family in Berlin Connecticut where he would start his life of changing names and backgrounds. I don't know how he ever kept track of all the names he went through. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, and, and your backstory, too. Well, and wouldn't he have to have some sort of ID 
Did he go back and get driver's license in each of these states or something? Well, must have. That's a good point. Yeah, must have. Don't ask me questions. I don't know. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I was, kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was trying to read. I'm kidding. I was trying to read between the lines. I'm and, kidding. And I was getting nowhere with my all my extensive research on this. I know. Well, I bet he did. I bet he he was able to kind of forge stuff or or get IDs. It was a little easier back in that time to do such things. Oh God, yeah, the eighties. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> So we're going to go in the list of his cons by kind of the timeline of before he became the Rockefeller. He starts off when he moves to this new home in Berlin, Connecticut. He becomes Christopher Gerhardt's writer. You think he was drawn to Berlin because of coming from Germany? Oh, that's a good point. It's interesting, huh? Also, the fact that um, his new name... He just split up his last name in half. True. True. Like, it's like, why? It, was, it was, wasn't was so creative, but maybe he could use that as an opportunity to um, go back and have some information about himself. At that true. Point, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. When he became Christopher Gerhardt's writer, he changed himself completely. He taught himself English started wearing tight European clothing, he grew out his hair, and he started telling people that he was related to European royalty. While living at this family home in Berlin, Connecticut. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt, but does it all it takes is to wear tight European clothing become European royalty? You tell me in the 80s. Uh, well, I could never wear tight European <laughs> clothing. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you make it obscure enough, I could fall for it. If you had a European accent and you looked European and you said, oh, my family is the 10th in line to the Finnish throne, I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, you're lying. I, well, might, I might be like, oh, really? That's interesting. But tell me more. And then if they did, I'd be like, I, I might believe it. Yeah, you always take things at face value at the very beginning. So, well, yeah, you, you don't know. want to assume people are always lying. That's that's absolutely correct. I mean, what would we have at that point? America. A bad assumption. <laughs> Which makes a... What? I can't say it. Oh, an A out of you and me. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> yeah, Jesse doesn't swear on this podcast. You shouldn't so. swear. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't either. Damn it. <laughs> He did not do anything helpful at the house. So this was a family home, and he was living on their couch. And he, it's not that he didn't do anything. He expected everything to be done for him. So he would wake up, and he'd expect his laundry to be done and folded for him, breakfast to be ready. And he even went so far as he was on the couch when the youngest daughter came home from school and the door was locked so she was knocking on the door and he wouldn't even get up from the couch to open the door for her. It is kind of funny how you know you pull out little segments of things about somebody's life or living in a uh -huh. house like that and that's what they come up with. Mm -hmm. I mean I'm sure there were other things about you know just the way he talked and etc yeah. and 
Well, this is like kind of the last straw for him because then he was kicked out of the house. After he was kicked out of this home in Connecticut, he goes to Wisconsin. Yeah, everyone does. Here he became Chris Kenneth Gerhardt and studied film. He found a woman, married her in 1981, got a green card, and then divorced her and left again. So he quickly married this woman to get the green card. And I think it was like two weeks after he got the green card. He basically, what the kids now say, ghosted her. Hmm. Okay, that's quite a term. Uh, do you know what that means? I do. Yeah. Left her never to be heard from again. Yep. Well, after being uh, in the lovely Wisconsin and heading back to L.A., he continued his descent of becoming a descendant of the British royalty. And Christopher Chichester was living in a wealthy suburb of L.A. When did he take Christopher Chichester? So after he divorced his wife with his green card, he moved to L.A. and he became Christopher Chichester. And we know people in Chichester, New Hampshire. I wonder if he got his name from Chichester, New Hampshire. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it's pretty bold, though, to claim you're a descendant of British royalty. Uh, well, absolutely, especially since so many people actually keep track of all the, the royalty. And um, and then would have a, a good chance of running across somebody who would yeah. look into this. But anyway, he did. Whatever. And uh, he was living in, in a wealthy suburb of L.A. where he really started to put himself out there. He would show up in businesses, social clubs, wealthy churches, crashing weddings, and libraries. Crashing weddings. Interesting. Yeah. He had an accent, fancy Ivy League clothes, and great manners with a calling card that had the Chichester family crest on it. Yeah, so it was kind of like a business card that he would give out to people at these like wealthy, wealthy clubs. And um, he would talk about the Chichester family crest. So he really seemed kind of privileged and legitimate so there definitely must be a chichester crest no i think he made it up oh anybody can make up a crest yeah but i mean again wouldn't somebody well he would tell them it was a chichester crest. i understand that but i would i uh, you know your your mother would go online to look at it who would look up a crest online oh wait a minute time out this is 1980s there's no online. online okay but also even in today's age i know a kid who got his family crest tattooed on on his bicep and I was like is that real but I'm not gonna look it up well that's different you know he's not claiming to be royalty is he that's true okay. no <laughs> <laughs> well and he was quite the charm charmer he uh, charmed older women and men with his ability to talk about everything important and convincing them he was descended from Lord Mont Montbatten yeah, Montbatten. Oh, I like Lord Montbatten. He was a he was quite a quite a great guy. Yeah. The British naval officer and the last British viceroy of India. Again, he, like, come on! If you're gonna con someone, why why go to those high extremes? If I was gonna con someone, I'd say, oh, my cousin is Lady Gaga. Nobody my, can track cousins. Yeah. Oh, I'm the fifth cousin of. Of Lady Gaga. Yeah. Yeah. Why go? But but we're, we're very yeah. tight. That's right. <laughs> I don't think that would. Oh work. no, our our families, our parents uh, don't talk. So. 
Exactly. I, I don't see her a lot. Yeah. You would, like you would have to do something like that. But I mean, United's really putting it out there. And that's pretty bold. I mean, that is definitely, mm-hmm. this guy has a lot of hoopspa, hoopspa. He's got a lot of confidence. You need a lot of confidence to convince people of yourself, especially in these circles. Like you said, he conned a lot of really smart people. So to have the gall to go into a wealthy club where there's all these, you know, PhD people and businessmen and stuff, and to accurately carry out a con, it's kind of impressive. You think he was a disco dancer? Totally. He's oh, from Germany. He looks like it, doesn't he? Looks yes. like he would have been a disco dancer. And he's from Germany. Too bad we we'll have some of his moves. We'll put them on there. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it on our website. <laughs> yeah. So, after starting with this con, he even became a producer on a small television show called Inside Sam Marino. Oh, sorry, San Marino, while living rent-free in a guest house of a reclusive alcoholic named Ruth Didi Sohas. Didi's adopted son, John, and his fiery red-headed wife named Linda. Just, you would think that red-headed, fiery. Well, okay, okay, because this is, this is what happened. I mean, you'll see it in the next line, but John was like really a geek. He he was just, people described him as being, you know, when you think of kind of like a computer nerd, a stereotypical one, that was John. And then his wife was this like tall redhead who was just like so feisty. Mm. And just together they were a random pairing. So opposites attract? Is that what you're saying? Complete opposites attract. <laughs> yes. Okay, so... His fiery redhead wife named Linda came to Dee Dee's home and found this weird guy living there. That would be a shocker, though, wouldn't it? John was super geeky in his 20s. There you go. Yeah. With a low-level job in a computer department in Pasadena. Linda worked as a clerk at a science fiction bookstore called Dangerous Visions. That's awesome. Yeah, I like it. It kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. People describe them as a strange pair who loved each other very much and were getting ready to move to New York where they would start working at an important job with a U.S. government satellite program. Okay, now, I had also read that they had no intentions of leaving California and that this this, this was... Oh, this was a ploy, the New York? Somebody threw this, somebody meaning Clark mm-hmm. Griswold here, decided to throw that out. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because where where I got most of the information from uh, regarding this case was this huge article on um, VanityFair.com. Mm. And they, they said that they had been planning to move to New York City. And that kind of was the start of people not really questioning where they go. Because... Spoiler alert, they go missing, and people are like, oh, well, they're in New York. They can't talk about their jobs, <coughs> so they're not going to really be in contact with people. So, in other words, they go off the grid, mm-hmm. uh, and no one asks Dee Dee what happened. Well, yes, because also Dee Dee's a reclusive alcoholic. Okay, so here we go, because mm-hmm. uh, this, this adds a little bit more substance yeah. to the whole thing. However, Linda's sister was worried when she didn't hear from her sister and called Dee Dee. 
Go said, sisters. Sister steak. Suspicion. Um, <laughs> called Didi, who said a source told her they were moving around. Didi even received two postcards from Linda from France. It wasn't until five months later she filed a missing persons report. I must have not been able to get out of that bottle. Yeah. A couple of years later, workers would start digging a pit for a swimming pool in Didi's backyard where they found three bags filled with human remains and clothing belonging to John and Linda. Uh, um, uh-oh. That, uh, you know, would, would they get paid extra after after finding something like that? Would you think they would start going, well, wait a minute, what what next am I going to find? I don't know. Are we talking about a serial killer here or something? No. Could you imagine if you're just, like, digging a, a hole for a swimming pool and then you find a bag and you're like, what's in here? And it's a dead, decomposed yeah. body. Well, okay, so the, the traveling um, <laughs> traveling Christopher Clark. Clark, whatever, is now, again, living in Connecticut. He loved Connecticut. He loved He loved C's. And he sure does. That's a good point. Everything's C's. Everything's C. He's now under the name of Christopher C. Crow. Mm-hmm. And was, again, using his confidence to attend private clubs, get women. Yeah. And even con his way into a job. At a leading brokerage firm based in Greenwich. This was interesting because the person who got him the job was a Yale and Harvard graduate. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And he was just like so smitten by uh, now Christopher Crow that he basically just like handed him the job. They they met at like a club. I don't wow. Know. Yeah. This guy, this guy had phenomenal con man. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, he was very intelligent. He, he's, it, it's shocking how he mm-hmm. continues to do this. I wish I could talk to somebody for like two hours and then they would give me a job. Yeah. Well, with a lot of money. You can, but then nobody will talk to you for two hours. I know. Especially with this voice. They cut it off in an hour and a half. Especially with this voice. <laughs> so, now wait a minute. Are we in the 90s now? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're moving into. Okay, so now we're getting a little more, it should be a little more sophisticated with uh, systems, but still. Not all that great. Sure. Um, so, <laughs> the Harvard Yale grad, who was so smitten with this guy, uh, that didn't carry over into the firm, mm-hmm. who almost immediately did not think so highly of Crow, and he was always talking because he was always talking about himself, saying he was a producer on the remake of a Hitchcock movie of the Hitchcock's movies. Unbelievable. Of all of them. Wow. But there actually was someone with that name on the films. Huh. With Christopher C. Crowd. So he he would claim that it was him. But he would talk about it all the time. Now this is this is the greatest point ever. Oh yeah. For somebody who you said was very smart, this wasn't this so This is smart. so stupid, yeah. He was fired when somebody checked his social security number he had given and it was the number of David Berkowitz, son of <laughs> Sam Killer in New York City. <laughs> I know. Did you read that earlier? <laughs> I said, oh. Like, oops. That's so wild. You know, you well, think about the psychology on that one. Where did, did he really know that it was Son of Sam? He you had to. So, uh, no, that that's way too much of a coincidence. You mm. had to. I could not, I mean, I listen to True Crime podcasts. I watch True Crime shows. I cannot even tell you somebody's, like, middle name unless it's you know like john wayne gacy like david berkowitz i don't know what his middle name is so how do you find out his social security number by accident you don't he looked it up 
He had to have looked it up. Yeah. But, I mean, that's not something that you put out there all the time. You know, I wonder how he got a hold of it. Um, especially, especially for this this psychotic, psychotic nut. Maybe that he thought that because Berkowitz was in jail that it wouldn't come up or something? That there would be no way to check it? Or, or they would check it and it would just be like, boop, boop, it's real. Not like, oh, it's real, but it's this person's. There's so much going on in this whole uh, life of this this clown that it's difficult to figure out where he was thinking, what he was thinking, and when he was thinking something. Again, but, this is Jesse and I talked about this um, on our last episode about how we every episode we try to kind of get into the minds of the person, and we never can, and we don't know why we keep trying, but it's just it's like a tick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you just want to be you just want to be like, well, what was he thinking? When really you can't know because we're normal people. Well, that's that's just up for debate. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, we're not. Who's judging normal here? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean us versus. Okay. Christopher Crow here. Now Christopher Crow. Yeah. Okay, so. He was fired. He was fired. He then was hired to head a department in a firm on Wall Street, making lots of money, but living in, still living in a guest house in Greenwich, renovating the main house. In quotes. Great. Mm-hmm. The guy's multi-talented as well. Yeah. He was fired again and then got a position in a Manhattan office, but Connecticut State Troopers were searching for him when they found out he tried to sell John Sosa's truck. Wow. So you think that he drove across, he must have driven across in that truck. Yeah. Wow. And then he had tried to sell it in Connecticut. And at first, nobody thought anything of it. But then later, when they filed the missing persons report and then eventually would find John's body, that's when it, the, you know, the truck was hit. This, this leads one to think about what happened to Linda. Did he take Linda for a ride with him? No, she was she was there too in the bags. But it just said they found John's remains. They found. I think they found both. Then why did they only put? They John found on John. Uh, oh, because I think they had more evidence. Oh, okay, we're well, jumping ahead. Sorry. You're jumping ahead. There. I'm jumping. Sorry. Um, okay, this time he decided to quit his job when they came looking for him. Saying that his parents were killed in Afghanistan. Yeah. Interesting. Now we go for the greatest transformation ever. So, at this point, he's getting even more confident in himself and in his abilities to have people believe his lies. And at this point, he moves into an apartment in New York City... And in late, like you said, the 90s, late 1992, he began to become ingrained into the wealthy Manhattan scene. He started this ruse by walking around with his fancy dog and bragging about his collection of modern art. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, you, do, you do get uh, the attention of a lot of women with a, with a cute dog or a baby. You oh you totally do. Uh, so obviously he uh, he's been doing his research. Yeah, and um, I mean this dog was like really it was one of those kind of um, 
what what are those dogs that are show dogs? What do you say that? Show dog. It was kind of like a show dog. And so he would go to these nicer parts of dog parks and stuff. And that was a good way for him to kind of start talking to a lot of these wealthier people is by talking about their dogs. Then he would mention his art collection. He would show them his art collection and then form friendships. So, I mean, it makes sense. People love their dogs. He was he was pretty devious. I know, but Manhattan, that's scary. I mean, that's scary to me to, to go in there and be like, oh, hello, all you wealthy, smart people. Here I am, and believe me on this. Like, I, I'm, I would be terrified. Uh, you would be terrified? That somebody would find me out or oh, that I wouldn't oh, be able to. Yes, yeah. Yeah. But you get, you know, you get lost in the noise at that point. That is also true. Because there's just everybody putting up some fake pretense. That's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. His lies became so crazy that a lot of people would later comment about kind of his almost erratic behavior mm -hmm. and the things that he would say. He, he told people that his parents died in a car accident. He never ate in restaurants because he said you, you can't trust the people in the back. Um, and somebody wrote this or said this about him that I thought was hilarious. At this time in late 1992, his diet consisted of cucumbers and watercress tea sandwiches and cream sherry. Cherry. You think he combined sherry? them all together? Sherry. Okay. You think he combined them all together? Well, I think he would eat the cucumber watercress tea sandwiches with like a glass of cream sherry. Yeah, you should, I mean, with cream so sherry, gross. you should put it in a bowl and just pour everything in. That's so gross. Ugh, so that's gross. just, I mean, tea sandwiches. You know how small those? Yeah, those are those tiny. Those are the ones you cut the triangle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ugh, ooh. You, you have to eat like 12 of those. At least, if not the whole platter. I know. Gross. But nothing really panned out for him until he met a woman named Sandra Mills Boss at a prominent church. That was another way that he would con his way into society is that he would go to all of these big wealthy churches and just kind of, you know, smooth with the people. Yeah, the uh, church is very uh, inviting yeah. and very outgiving. So mm -hmm. and, yeah, it's, it's smart. Trusting, yeah. you know. Sandra was, in my opinion, Awesome. She was a smart Stanford graduate, and she was at the time attending Harvard Business School to get her MBA. Did he meet Sandra at the church? He met her sister, her twin sister there, and they became friends, and um, her twin sister said, you need to meet my sister. I think you guys would, would match because um, this twin, Julia, I believe was her name, she was already married. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because at the time, Sandra was at Harvard Harvard Business School in Boston. Right. Immediately, they were attracted to each other's love of business and intelligence. They first hit it off. He hosted a Clue-themed party. And from the get-go, they, they just locked eyes. She grew up in an upper-middle-class home in Seattle. And she was always described as being extremely competitive. She had many impressive jobs, such as a position at Merrill Lynch, a Dallas real estate company, and she loved the fact that Clark wasn't concerned about material wealth. 
<laughs> yeah. That's that's fascinating, especially as we go on here. I know. So when they ended up getting married, this I found was interesting because I never knew that this was real. But they got married at a Quaker meeting mm-hmm. house on Nantucket because in a Quaker house ceremony, mm-hmm. only the wife, only Sandra needed to sign all of the licenses and certificates which meant that there was no trace of Clark's, you know, so nobody had to look up his social security number or anything like that to trace him to his actual background in Germany. So it wasn't either or. It was the wife. Was it was the, the wife, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting in itself. Where did that come from? I don't know. Back in the days and times of it. But again, you know, Brilliant on his part. I know. Himself out the so smart. So smart, yeah. Again, he's telling everyone that he's a Rockefeller. He said his parents had died in a car accident, but that other Rockefeller people would show up to their wedding. And when you looked up the names that he was giving them, it was actually like a distant Rockefeller cousin who her and her husband had actually died in a car accident. Okay. So it did make sense. Yeah. However, on the wedding day, Clark said that something came up and no one on his side show, showed up. That would have been a That would have been side. a red flag. Well, yeah, but that, not only that, but wouldn't that be kind of... Well, I think that would be a friends. lonely side for him. I know. I mean, poor, poor Clark. Only, yeah. Only kidding. Only kidding. Yeah. <laughs> After their wedding, they split their time between New York and Nantucket. Clark started a company called Asterix LLP that supposedly advised third world countries on their finances. But he was not making any money in the job, so Sandra was the real provider. When she graduated from Harvard with her MBA, she got a job at a discreet consulting firm in New York and became the youngest woman ever to be elected as a director at this company. That's fabulous. So she's so smart and really ambitious. Right. And he's kind of playing along with it that he's the same way, but he he's doing doesn't nothing. do anything. Yeah. He doesn't get off the couch. He doesn't, Again. He doesn't open the door for the for the ambassador coming <laughs> to ask questions. He just sits on his chair and plays games. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you go. I mean. You, oh. and, you and your games. Well, that's what. That's what all everyone does these days. You gotta say that's what the youth do the, these days, because that's I I just love saying youth. Youth. That's or what y- the youths do. Or the youths. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, the youths. Youths. Uh, okay, so Sandra's family started to have some questions about her husband over the top attitude. Oh, so he he became a little snarky, did he? I would totally have tell my friend if. You know, her husband was, like, super over the top. Well, do you think that he uh, he would leave the country? No, he couldn't leave the country, could he? No. Because he would not have a passport. No, he would not have a passport. So you think he would go somewhere saying, that I'm going to go to uh, France, but goes... He probably did well, keep he, up the facade. Well, he, he said a lot of the time that, you know, he would go on conference calls and, and things with... Places in Africa and places in South America. And, you know, he would put on that facade of having 
many business dealings with a bunch of people from this for this company. I see. Um, but I think what their friends were talking about were he was just constantly telling everybody about all of the stuff he has and all of the things he's done and all of the degrees he has. And um, in particular, he would always constantly talk about getting all of these art um, art paintings and things and then never really showing them because then he would say, oh, yeah, that $1 million piece of art there, I was going to buy that, but you know what? I kind of didn't feel like it. Yeah, exactly. But he was always, always, always talking about something to do with himself, he which is so annoying. Very self-important. Yes, exactly. For, for no reason. Yeah. Well, he uh, he eventually started to become very controlling and paranoid. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you leave so much stuff behind you, it becomes yeah very difficult to keep what everything straight. Yep. So, uh, leading Sandra to leave him for a period of time in early two thousands while pregnant, he got her back, and after an altercation with a woman in Central Park and the police coming to their apartment, Clark decided. The family will move to Cornish, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Now, was this this all happened in New York, right? Yeah. So this was all in New York, and um, apparently he got into a like screaming and verbal match with a woman while he was walking the dog in Central Park, and um, eventually the police came to their apartment to talk to him about it. And I think at this point he got paranoid that they were going to find something out about him and his past. So he convinced Sandra that the best move for the family um, and for their impending child was to move out of the busy New York City into New Hampshire. So where it's quieter, people aren't, people yeah. are more accepting, et cetera. Yeah, and really he was just trying to get out of Dodge. And, you know, at first I thought, why wouldn't he just leave Sandra behind and, and go and start over again? But... I think he was really loving the Rockefeller name, and also she was supporting him financially. So he couldn't really leave. He didn't have any money. Well, that's true. But also, she was pregnant at the time, so he, as we find out later, yeah, he did have... obsessed. Exactly. Yeah. Well, in New Hampshire, his outrageous behavior continued, and he would ride a Segway around the streets. <laughs> <laughs> now, that would be a sight. Yeah. Parked a bunch of old cars on his lot, and he even attempted to buy an old church. Yeah, so there's like a historic church for sale, and and he wanted to buy it, and everyone in the town was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think he ended up, he, he did end up buying it. They probably thought he parked some cars in there. Yeah. Uh, everything changed on May 23rd, 2001. Ooh, May, baby. Amen. When their daughter, Ray, was born, who Clark called her Snooks. So cute. It is as a baby, man. Not when it gets older. Yeah, that's true. And when Ray gets older, he thrived at being a father and homeschooled Snooks, and she until she turned five, and entered school in Boston, as Sandra's insistence. Uh, you know, the fact that you said they was homeschooled. What do you homeschool up to five? I mean, it's no different than raising. Yeah. Well. But I bet. Yeah. I bet he. I bet he said he was homeschooling. Her, because she's probably so intelligent and stuff. But it, it got to a point where, when she, before she turned five, Sandra was like, "We need to put her in, you know, daycare. We need to put her in kindergarten or something because she could not uh, be social with 
kids of her own age or any kids. She was only social with adults, right. which is not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, when kids are certain ages, they need to know how, like, they learn a lot from other kids their age, like Definitely. sharing and, and, and being friends and things like that. And Clark was adamant that she was not going to go to school. So I think when homeschooling here, she, he, like, wanted to keep her homeschooled forever. Forever. Yeah. And he probably had given um, Sandra all this information on how, you know, how he used to teach her yeah. one time, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. Like, oh, who's the smartest person to teach her than me? Exactly. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the best. Well, it was here where Sandra and Clark's marriage started to go down the tubes. I'm surprised it took so long. Mm-hmm. All right. So... Now comes the interesting transition where he has definitely gone over the edge. Uh-huh. Even though he's been over the edge for a long time, but he really went over the edge here. Um, even though Clark was clearly a devoted father, walking Snooks to the bus stop every day, his parenting deeply contrasted with what Sandra wanted for her daughter. Her kindergarten teacher called them in to talk about Snooks' behavior at school, but Clark would hear nothing about it. Hmm. When Sandra went away on a work trip, she filed for divorce. Smart. Yeah. Yeah, so apparently, like, he just would not, if anybody gave them any kind of advice or criticism, he would just shut down. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's natural with when somebody becomes paranoid. And, yeah. And, uh, well, whatever he was. But, man, he, he was... He had gone it's off. Gone. Yeah. I mean, there's only so long that you can keep up a facade. Well, exactly. And especially after living with the same person. I mean, he never really stayed in any any spot that long. I know. With some, yeah. with some person. So that yeah. definitely started to give away a lot of his mm-hmm. uh, back or history would come to the forefront and cause some of these issues. Yeah. And when you get comfortable with someone, too, you might let some things slip or you might forget some things. You're right. Right. The divorce and custody battle was vicious, with Sandra's lawyers starting to dig deeper into Clark's past. In order to keep his facade of being a Rockefeller, Clark ended up accepting a deal with Sandra, where she got both of their houses in full custody of Snooks, with Clark accepting eight hundred thousand dollars and an agreement to only three supervised visits with his daughter per year so three visits constitutes three days you think why are you asking me these things well because i mean the whole the whole fact is i think it was like it was probably days or i mean maybe it was a week but I, it was supervised. You anyway, would, you would have thought that the fact that it had to be supervised, that Sandra was a little bit on edge with this, with him, and that uh, she was fearful about what he would do. So yeah, well, yeah. she did. She had um, <coughs> she had hired a private investigator, and you know, she discovered that he was not actually a Rockefeller, but she didn't know his his real name, and he was also starting to be kind of. Um, aggressive and during the divorce and custody battle he was he was just being really like off the rails wow 
Well, I think it's fantastic. I mean, that seems like the system somewhat worked here where they were able to keep him away from his daughter. Yeah. Uh, till visits only with supervision. Yeah, she clearly was. I mean, I don't know if she, I don't think she knew the full extent of everything, but she was clearly like not getting good vibes from him anymore. I think and... she was suspicious. <gasps> good job, Dad. Thank you very much. Jesse will love that. In 2008, Clark took Snooks, accompanied by their court-appointed social worker, on a walk to Boston Garden to go in the swamp boats. So at this time, Sandra and Snooks had actually moved to London. So this was during one of his supervised visits with Snooks in Boston. As they're walking to Boston Garden, a black SUV limo was waiting with instructions from Clark that he and his daughter had a lunch date in Rhode Island and that they had a clingy friend they needed to get rid of. The driver agreed because he was being paid a lot of money. So for him, he was like, oh, whatever. This guy's paying me a bunch. Right. It wasn't a surprise then when Clark pushed the social worker to the ground, threw his daughter into the limo, and yelled at the driver to speed away. The social worker had grabbed on to the, the door or, or the back bumper or something. He grabbed onto the limo and was dragged for several yards before he let go. Well, even either way to go, social worker. Well, either we have a very, very dedicated social worker or a very stupid social worker. I don't know which. I'd say dedicated, because wow. And then he he should get paid more. All social workers should get paid more. Oh, oh, but anyway, that's yeah, yeah. that's a different issue. Um. So the driver took them to a train station, where they then, instead of taking a train, one of his friends picked him up, and when they got stuck in traffic. Clark just opened the door and ran out with his daughter. A few moments, it says immediately, but it was probably, it probably wasn't like right after he left the car. The woman who was driving him received an Amber Alert concerning Clark's abduction of Snooks. So she's like, oh crap. And you know, it's great to hear that the Amber Alert is really really works yeah oh, I love well it. yeah. it's fantastic no one knew where they were headed or where they were going um in the weeks leading up to this he actually would tell some friends that he was going to be out of town for a little bit he was sailing to peru he was going to alaska he was going to turks and caicos or even to the bahamas this is something that is is like so interesting to me the night before he kidnapped Snooks, he was at a friend's house, and he had a glass of wine. When the when he took Snooks, the FBI went, you know, to see, like, what has he been doing the past 48, 28, four hours, see if anybody knew where he was. So they went to this friend's house, and the friend hadn't um, washed the dishes yet, so they were able to get the his fingerprints from the glasses. Um. I believe through my very thorough research yeah. that the friends actually contacted the FBI. Oh. After they saw uh, his picture in the news mm. that he uh, he was on the run and that he had kidnapped Snooks. Oh, man. So they called and they were able to get this uh, glass of wine that he used. Thank God they didn't clean it. Oh, I, clean, I know. I, I well, clean things immediately. You do. But, you know, in our house, that would have been safe. 
That would true, especially wine. Two or three days later, <laughs> that glass would have been still there. <laughs> but thankfully, they did it because they ran his fingerprints, and finally, the police and FBI found out who the true Clark was. When they released photos of him to the press, kind of like what you said about the friends from the night before, multiple people came forward saying they knew him, but under the different names like Christopher Chichester, Christopher Crow, Christopher Gerhardt's writer, people were like, oh, I know him, but his name's not Clark Rockefeller when I knew him. One specific person who came forward was a real estate agent in Baltimore who recognized this picture and told the FBI a man looking like Clark came to him under the name Chip Smith with his daughter, Muffy, looking for a home as he was a single parent relocating from Chile. You think he had an accent? Ooh, good Coming question. from Chile, you think he brought an accent or had a fake accent? Well, he probably had a German accent. Well, by that time, I'm sure the accent was gone. But so he must have—he must have had though, like, like a little twinge of an accent. So who knows if this guy was like, "Oh, that's not a Chilean accent; that's a German accent." But he just might have seemed foreign. Right. Mm -hmm. right. This is awesome. So the police got the manager of a marina where Clark had a boat. They had them him call Clark and say that the boat was taking on water. So as he left his home, he was arrested in Maryland. Nice. But I just thought that's so that's so interesting. It's like, you know, you had a you have a boat, so go take care of your boat after right. you kidnapped your daughter. I mean, to separate the two of them or make sure nothing happened. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Get him out of the house. Uh huh. Exactly. Uh huh. Well, he was charged originally with custodial kidnapping, assault, and battery by means of a deadly weapon. The limo, even though he wasn't driving? No, because right. it was his commands, yeah. All right. Assault and battery and furnishing a false name to the police. Yeah, really. Yeah. Multiple. Multiple. Names. In 2013, Christian Clark was then convicted and given a life sentence for the murder of Jonathan Sohas. Sandra and Snooks moved to London and are moving on from this traumatic past. Oh, Snooks. It's still interesting, though, about what happened to Linda, the fiery redhead. Yeah. Um, because you know that if he killed Jonathan, he must have killed her, too. Oh, 100%, because, yeah, I mean, where would she have gone? And it really does seem to be a little bit different than, from his normal M.O. Yeah. But, and evidence did show um, that Jonathan, the victim, John had been uh, struck in the head two times with a rounded blunt object and then stabbed six times. Wow. His body had been cut into three parts. Oh. I think what happened was that John did not like... Clark's kind of influence over his mother, and so was probably starting to get suspicious of him, and maybe Did you him, say suspicious, suspicious. Okay, and maybe him and Linda were kind of starting to question him, and so he, but I don't know why he didn't just pick up and run away. That's what he usually does. Yeah, 
But I guess in this, in this point, though, if he if he did, they would continue to look into him and might uh, might find. I mean, a, a lot of supposition, but uh, might find more information about him. Yeah. I don't um, know. So. So what? Well, yeah, because I mean, the evidence in in the case against him for Jonathan uh, was really circumstantial, but. The two plastic bags that were found buried with the remains, there was one from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee where he had attended classes from 1979 to 1982. And the other one was from the University of Southern California where uh, Clark Christian, whatever his name is, he was um, auditing film classes. So that really, and then also the the fact that he had his truck, John's truck, all the way across the country. Right, right. Definitely. Yeah. That would kind of uh, put me uh, toward the, the guilty side. But it still, it, it didn't seem like a lot of evidence. I mean, anybody can get a USC or get a yeah. Wisconsin thing. But anyway, it, I do. Yeah, that... the truck is definitely really... That's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just, I hope Linda um, no. is is resting in peace somewhere because... And John, yeah. Unbelievable. I know. Okay. Um, there's also, if, if you want to find out more, I mean, of course we can't do like a super... There's so many pieces to this puzzle and, you know, there's so many outrageous things that he said and he did. So if you're looking for more... Um, there's, of course, our favorite channel, Lifetime, has a movie, Who is Clark Rockefeller? Whose favorite channel? Ours. You, you're including me in that comment? Yes, you love Lifetime. Oh! <laughs> definitely in charge of my feminine side. I know, right? There's also a nonfiction account called The Man in the Rockefeller Suit by a journalist named Mark Seal. Um, there's a another biography called Name Dropper by Frank Girardeau. Um, there's another book called Blood Will Out by Walter Kern, who's also a friend yeah. of Clark. Yeah. There's a television documentary called The Six Million Dollar Con Man. And oh, and there's a new documentary that was that was produced in 2015 that a lot of people said is actually really good, and it's called My Friend Rockefeller. Mm. I believe that was on Netflix at one I point. I think we saw one of them. I can't remember which one it was, but uh, yeah, fascinating. Again, you just don't have enough time, and you need you need you need hours to describe what this guy's been doing. Yeah, so, I mean, of course, as usual, um, I'm going to post on our website all of the information regarding this case. And I will, um, in the research, above the research sources that we put at the end of our posts, I'll also include all of the books that you can find on him, the uh, documentaries, Lifetime movie, everything like that. Um, I hope that you got some good information from us. But like I said... There is so much more if you're, like, interested in this at all. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So for our organization spotlight for this episode, I was trying to find an organization that helps um, victims of fraud. 
And it was really interesting to me because most of the resources and of organizations that help people in fraudulent situations, it's all aimed towards the elderly who have been conned out of their retirement or Medicare funds. Mm -hmm. Very susceptible. Yeah. So do you want to tell them about our organization this? Uh, the organization is the National Center for Victims of Crime, and it's a program uh, to help advocates assist victims of financial fraud and ensure that victims have access to the best possible services and advice to assist them with recovery. Much like the techniques used to commit financial fraud, the techniques used to report these crimes are constantly evolving. If you or someone you know has been a victim of financial fraud, please visit their website at victimsofcrime.org. All one word, victimsofcrime.org. And um, also, the Attorney General uh, of your state is somewhere to turn who uh, has your interest uh, at hand and would be a viable resource as well. Oh, that's great, Dad. Thanks for bringing that with man. I didn't know about that. Thank you very much. Um, as usual, I'll post all of that and where you can find <coughs> this organization on our website, suspicion.com. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review and rating. Dad, thank you so much for being on this episode with me. Morgan, this was so much fun. And Jesse, anytime you need to not be here, mm -hmm. I will sit in. Thanks. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad you had fun. Thank you. So thanks for listening, everyone. And stay suspicious. <laughs> God.